0: Welcome to this episode of the insights podcast on the huddle network i'm don mills
1: and i'm david campbell
0: well david we had a quite a very uh detailed and interesting conversation with scott skinner the ceo of the clean foundation uh which was formerly known at one time as uh, clean nova scotia the organization was founded in 1988 and people might be surprised to know that it's an independent, non-governmental environmental charity. And uh, and they get their funding, really, by doing programming for various levels of government. And um, they're doing a lot of very interesting and important work. And um, I guess I was surprised that they've been around for so long, and uh, I didn't know much about them. But... Uh, You know, Scott is a very articulate, young uh, CEO, and he did a great job uh, telling us about uh, what they do.
1: That's right. They have 90 staff. They work in a number of areas from uh, energy policy to uh, developing the clean energy workforce and environmental protection. So they have a a wide variety of of, uh, things that they do. And like the others in this series, we were trying to find out more about the Clean Foundation, but we also wanted to ask uh, Scott, in particular, his thoughts around climate change and green energy and a broader set of issues around addressing our 2050 uh, climate objectives.
0: Yeah, and he re- re- reinforced a lot of uh, the things that we've been hearing recently by talking with various uh, um, alternate energy um, uh, providers, it, it's quite clear that we're going to need a portfolio approach uh, to greening the economy. And um, everybody's, there's a growing consensus around that. Um, and uh, I think the fact that so many people are recognizing what the solutions are is meaningful. And he also made a, a really important point that I think uh, people uh, should appreciate is that uh, the governments are aligned. The provincial governments Municipal governments and the federal government have alignment on the goals, Um, and, uh, you know, he seems pretty optimistic that uh, the right strategies are in place to achieve net zero by 2050. So, you know, that's a reinforcing message that we've heard uh, on a number of occasions already.
1: I think that's right. Although I would say, and you and I have talked about this, I think I would like to see a little more specificity. So he says the goal now is to be for Nova Scotia to be completely off coal by 2030. That's seven and a half years. Uh, We've also heard from other uh, podcast uh, guests that the demand for electricity is actually going to go up in Nova Scotia as a result of electrifying everything else, including transportation. So you've got increasing demand for electricity 43% of your electricity today is by coal, Uh, seven and a half years, you're going to be completely off coal. So this, uh, I, not just Nova Scotia, across Atlantic Canada, I'd like to see a little more specificity for how we're going to get from A to B, because I think the public deserves it. Uh, And as you and I've talked about, we need to understand the cost and who's going to pay. Is it the taxpayer, the rate payer? You know the rich, the poor. Who who's going to end up footing the bill for this transition to uh, to a carbon free world?
0: Yeah, there's not enough discussion on uh, on that uh, on that topic for certain, um, and and it's and it's going to be very challenging <clears throat> for jurisdictions like Nova Scotia that depend on fossil fuel to the extent that they do to find alternatives. Uh, there's lots of work being done, but the timeline is very short, as you mentioned, and. Um, you know, we plan to have uh, Scott Balfour, the CEO of Amir, on a future uh, uh, podcast, and uh, it'd be very interesting to get his uh, reaction to how that's going to be achieved. Uh, but, you know, uh, the one thing that I, I really liked about the work that the Clean Foundation is doing is they're talking about uh, coastal mitigation work um, that they're doing. <clears throat> People might be surprised that he, he mentioned that there's uh, 13,000 kilometers of coast uh, to deal with in Nova Scotia and with rising tides and uh, uh, whatever that comes from climate change that you know we're vulnerable like other maritime provinces are to climate change from that aspect. Uh, They're currently doing a lot of work on the Northumberland Strait as I understand it uh, especially on uh, salt marshes which are really important for Uh, carbon capture. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that very few people know about. And uh, that was very interesting.
1: That's right. Climate change mitigation. In other words, addressing the outcomes of climate change is going to be another part of the mix here. Uh, And the Clean Foundation is, as you indicated, working very quite a bit on uh, uh, environmental protection, particularly salt marshes on the coastline. So uh, impressive role for them, but also pointing to the fact that we have to be looking at the impacts of climate change and how we uh, address those as well.
0: And one other area that I think is important is the the work that they're doing in the transportation sector. Um, They're supporting uh, governments in in, uh, providing uh, rebates for uh, electric vehicles and, interestingly, e-bikes. And in fact, uh, I think he said, if I'm not mistaken, that they... um, they provided uh, rebates for uh, 3,000 e- e-bikes in the last year or so. And, you know, that's a, that's a pretty impressive number, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. So, And that we may have to focus more on e-bikes, with California indicating that there'll be no internal combustion engine vehicles sold by 2035. Uh, there's not going to be enough EVs in production by then, so there's going to be a scarcity. So we might be all uh, have to travel around on e-bikes. So that's probably be a pretty good strategy for Nova Scotia. In the summer, maybe not in the winter.
0: Yeah, not so much in the winter. Uh, (laughs) One other area that we unfortunately didn't get a chance to talk about, but, you know, I think it's interesting is that they're, uh, they're really uh, doing um, a lot of educational efforts, especially among younger um, uh, population to educate them about what's going on in the climate, but they're also preparing people for jobs uh, in the green environment. And, um, I think that that's, uh, that's something that uh, is important to prepare people for the new economy in this regard. And, and the other thing that we talked about that I think was interesting is that the, the Clean Foundation has had a fairly significant role in helping uh, create the most recent uh, Nova Scotia climate legislation. And um, you know uh, Scott himself uh, chaired the Roundtable for uh, Environment and Sustainable Prosperity and, uh, you know, so the, that climate le- legislation is, uh, is now available and is being rolled out. And so that was an important conversation as well.
1: Yeah, it's good to have NGOs like the Clean Foundation that can play a part in crafting that legislation, and I would say uh, trying to get the balance right between economy, environment and social outcomes. They're very interested in energy poverty is one of their themes. Uh, So it's good to have an organization like the Clean Foundation. They're actually expanding their services outside of Nova Scotia, he tells us. Uh, So we'll need more and more of these NGOs to play a strong role moving forward.
0: I think the conversation is uh, very worth listening to for those who are following the the work being done on climate. Um, So here's our conversation with Scott Skinner, the CEO of Clean Nova Scotia. Scott, welcome to the Insights Podcast.
1: Thanks. Uh, my pleasure to be here. I, I very much appreciate the invite. We always like to begin by finding out a little bit about our guest background. Can you tell us your career path and how you ended up as the CEO of the Clean Foundation? Yeah,
2: sure. Um, well, uh, back in the early 2000s, I was at Dalhousie doing an MBA, actually at the same time as your, your son, Mike, Don. And uh, I, I became very interested in like, the, the, the cross-section of business in the, in the economy. Um, so I was very lucky to be there at that time, and uh, you know, and still to this day, I believe like the, the business faculty is co-located with environmental studies and the faculty of management. So I got to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, exploring some of these questions um, in the environmental studies faculty while I was doing an MBA. Afterwards, uh, I you know tried to pursue a career in this uh, area, and, and at first it wasn't the easiest thing because it, it you know it wasn't top of mind for many organizations but uh, I I found my way into, um, you know, clean tech, uh, energy efficiency services. I I worked with an organization that uh, works with utilities across the country. Um, You know, I worked uh, at clients like SAS Power, Manitoba Hydro Efficiency Nova Scotia, uh, Newfoundland Hydro, and some in the U.S. And it gave me a good platform to learn about um, energy and climate issues. And then about uh, just over six years ago, an opportunity came up to uh, apply for the uh, the leader role at the Clean Foundation. And and, uh, I went through an interview process with the board. And and, and thankfully, they uh, they thought I was the right guy at the right
0: time. Um, Many of our listeners will not be familiar with the uh, Clean Foundation. Um, How did the uh, Clean Foundation originate? And what is its uh, mandate, uh, Scott?
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting origin story. It was created by uh, an act of legislation by the government of Nova Scotia back in 1988, the Clean Nova Scotia Foundation Act. It was around the time that uh, the province had um, you know, started on, a, on the path of uh, more ambitious waste diversion targets. So um, the Clean Foundation was created as sort of like the public education arm. But Interestingly, it was created with independence. We're not a we're not a crown, um, but we've been there to work with uh, governments at all three levels uh, as things become policy and priority. And they're looking for a partner to help deliver programs in the community. So fast forward to today and um, we've uh, we're an organization that's really focused on uh, helping make real progress towards a cleaner future by taking on serious climate change uh, challenges and and we do this by bringing together specialized teams to work together on complex problems delivering projects and programs and communities so we're, we're working in like we have five teams um, today we have one called clean coasts clean energy clean transportation uh, education and engagement and workforce development so uh, we've come a long way like um, the scope of our organization has increased over over time and and, and now we're we've got our hands in, in, in all kinds of issues uh, and it gives us a pretty unique uh, perspective on uh, the challenges of the clean economy transition.
0: Uh, perhaps you can tell us about your annual budget and the size of your workforce and, and maybe a little bit about the source of funding for your work, if you would, Scott. Yeah, sure. Uh,
2: so uh, we've been growing a lot over the last couple of years. So like before the pandemic, we were Operating at around uh, eight million dollar annual budget, uh, uh, post through the pandemic, we've been growing a lot. Now we're in the vicinity of about twenty million a year, uh, and along with that growth, our, our headcount has increased. We're we're now uh, around ninety FTEs. Uh, those are predominantly uh, based in Halifax, but we have an office in in Sydney, Nova Scotia. We have we have quite a few remote. Um, working employees, a lot of the energy auditors, and we, we've recently hired in PEI. Uh, on top of that, each summer we, we bring a, a, a lot of students onto our payroll through the, uh, a program called Clean Leaders for summer internships with um, organizations around Nova Scotia. So we had biggest year ever, 124 of them this summer, which was awesome. Um, in terms of our funding uh, and revenue, like we, we don't receive any core funding at all. Um, you know, and this is like you know, key to our independence. Uh, we we work through service contracts with with uh, partners, and in, in, in most cases, government. So we're working uh, with with a number of federal government departments, a number of uh, provincial government departments. Um, also municipalities uh, organizations like fcm and things like that um, we have a, we have a very long list of uh, a lo- very long list of partners that we work with so in some cases we act as like an administrator which you know we uh, we'll talk about this a bit later but the ev rebates we administer money in that respect uh, in other cases we're like a program um, delivery consultant and sometimes a mix of the two but uh, we've been on a pretty aggressive growth path um, is uh, like I say to the staff often. Uh, it seems like the world needs more clean foundation. So um, it's it's been a it's been a fun ride over the last little while, and, and we're really happy that we've been able to like contribute to creating good jobs in in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada.
0: I noticed that you recently changed your name from Clean Nova Scotia to the Clean Foundation. Um, what was the rationale behind this name change? So th- this actually happened uh, about, I think, eight
2: years ago now. It was before my time. So, I mean, I think people in Nova Scotia will always call us Clean Nova Scotia. That that, that won't change. I mean, that's how we've been around for like 35 years now, and, and that's how a lot of people know us. But uh, we now, um, and it's been a while, like we we operate outside of Nova Scotia in, in the region and, and some kind, sometimes uh, our programs have like a national scope. But, uh, you know, the the aspiration set in, I guess, around that you know, about eight years ago. And they thought, well, uh, maybe it's time to look at the brand. And after uh, we've al- we were always called, uh, you know, legally the Clean Nova Scotia Foundation. So uh, uh, after going through a branding process, uh, uh, landed on Clean Foundation. But it's essentially uh, the reasons because, like, the organization's not just focused entirely on Nova Scotia anymore. And we know that uh, when we're operating in other places, like, it, it helps to have a bit of an uh, location agnostic brand.
1: Scott, we want to talk, unpack a little bit more about the initiatives you're working on, but we wanted to talk, ask you first a few broader questions. We'll get to net zero. The first question I would ask you is what do you think is the biggest threat to Nova Scotia and the rest of Atlantic Canada from climate change?
2: Well, I mean, that's a, that's a difficult question. Like, I mean, the first thing to know about it is that like, uh, you know, how climate change is going to impact us is non-linear and unpredictable. Um, You know, a lot of the the impacts that we're seeing now are largely baked in by the emissions that have already occurred. Um, So like we now have the challenge of not just mitigating emissions, but adapting to them. But from an Atlantic Canadian perspective, I mean, you know, sea level rise is definitely on the list. Uh, Storms impact on infrastructure. Um, We have some areas that are very susceptible to localized flooding. Um, You know, heat waves and droughts are going to impact us, like our number is going to be called. um, We just don't know when. Um, The other thing I would say, like, um, you know, if if you're talking about like challenges and threats, I mean, I I would also say like, uh, you know, there's there's a chance that we could get left behind in the shift to a clean economy. Um, You know, I'm more optimistic about that risk uh, now because there is such a focus and we're seeing uh, government uh, policy and priority lining up to 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 try to take advantage of those things, but um, it's a it's a complex time, and, and not only do we need um, you know to act with urgency, we need to be very strategic because uh, along with like the climate challenges, we we have you know affordability, healthcare, many others that we have to uh, try to um, you know address concurrently.
1: So the federal government has a target to get us to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 we've talked in previous podcasts about what the net means but we'd like to get your thoughts as an expert in this field about how realistic that goal is for canada overall and for our region
2: yeah i mean it's an enormous challenge like it must be accomplished right like uh, you know it, it's uh, it's not going to be easy um you know i think we have a pretty clear pathway to some of the 2030 goals like the, these will fall into what the Canadian Climate Institute is um, called the safe bets, like lots of energy efficiency, green the grid, things like that. When you start to look at the the net zero pathway into the post 2030, you're looking at what in many cases, what they're calling the wildcard. So technology development around carbon capture, utilization, storage, that's, you know, essentially the net. And then, you know, we we need things to to progress pretty rapidly on things like green hydrogen, SMRs, um, nature-based solutions, um, and, and things we probably haven't, you know, really thought up yet. But, you know, thankfully, there's there's smart people all around the world that are working on this now, and, and many, many in, in Atlanta, Canada, really, really impressive, uh, inspiring people. But uh, in, in general, um, you know, like, I, I don't want to um, understate the the, the difficulty in, in reaching net zero. I mean, over the last few years, we've seen um, corporate pledges, governments, like there's a lot of stuff that has to be filled in and a lot of things that have to go right if we want to achieve net zero uh, and maintain the standard of living uh, that uh, we're used to. And that's gonna require, in, in a lot of cases, like reimagining our our, our cities and communities uh, and how we get around and what we do and how we, how we power them. Um, But huge opportunities, like unprecedented economic opportunities, I think, are associated with this as well.
0: Um, Maybe you could tell us where Nova Scotia is in terms of reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Do you have an impression? Well, Are we on target? Are we ahead of target or behind target? Nova Scotia
2: is like, um, you know, in comparison to some other places doing pretty well, I think. You know, we have we have a pretty clear understanding of how we're going to get to the 2030 targets, which is a 53% reduction over 20, 2005 emissions. Um, you know, a lot of those come through the electricity sector and, you know, obviously there's a few things to fill in there, but um, you know, that's the stuff that uh, broadly, um, you know, we know how to do. It's just about choosing what we're going to do and who's going to pay for it and things like that. Uh, as you get into, um, you know, the 2050 net zero i mean we're going to be subject to a lot of the same dynamics as other places we're we're going to have to figure out how to avoid sort of uh um some dead ends you know natural gas is going to be part of our mix uh, into 2030 but we've got to think beyond that um you know because uh, the opportunities for carbon capture utilization and storage in our region are are not as great as they might be in other places uh, save for some technology that hasn't been developed yet but, um, you know, I, I think there's strong commitment out here. Um, there's uh, a great collaboration amongst a lot of stakeholders that have a part in this. Like, uh, you know, I feel pretty optimistic that we're, we're developing the knowledge base to, to get there. And I mean, this is not happening, um, not in isolation. We have, uh, you know, organizations like... Uh, Canadian Climate Institute that's putting a lot of work into cre- clean growth pathways. We have now Atlantic-based Climate Clim Atlantic that's working on uh, characterizing the risks. So, um, you know, I, I think we're, uh, I remain optimistic, but it, it's like a, like the national goal is a huge challenge.
0: Uh, indeed, one of the key challenges facing Nova Scotia is the transition away from coal-burning power plants, which currently accounts for, I think, 47% of the energy used to produce electricity in the province. Uh, what do you think are the best options for the province um, to move to greener sources of energy to generate electricity in the province?
2: Well, I mean, at this point, I think the the main ones that, you know, stand in front of us are, are wind. Um, you know, wind, the wind procurement came in at a very attractive price, the Nova Scotia rate based procurement that was announced a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think there's probably some great opportunities on offshore wind as well, or you know, those could be grid tied or, or tied into green hydrogen projects. I mean, um, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, things to be filled in on that side. Um, we're we're going to need, um, you know, grid modernization, uh, distributed energy, solar batteries, those type of things. I mean, really, uh, it, it's, it's coming down to, you know, the technologies are there. Uh, How do we fit them in uh, at the right price to make sure that we're not um, creating an unaffordable grid that exacerbates uh, already existing energy poverty problems? But um, I I think we're we're mostly looking at like stuff that there's great knowledge and capacity around. uh, And we have like a really robust like wind energy here in Atlanta, Canada. There's great companies that have a lot of experience.
1: So we've recently had several podcasts on different green or greener, greenish uh, energy options, including uh, tidal, the potential of green hydrogen. Uh, we did talk wind and uh, and uh, most recently, small modular reactors as a carbon-free uh, source of energy production. Um, do you have any thoughts on any of these specifically in terms of their role in the region? Well, first off, I think,
2: you know, we, we need to be open-minded and let technologies and options stand on their own, own merits, um, you know, and not... Um, uh, rule things out um, any particular reason. But, you know, w- we're going to need all of the above. Of that list, I mean, I-, I think Tidal has a lot of work to do on the cost profile. Right now, it'd be hard to fit Tidal in at in large amounts uh, and uh, have that uh, compete against um, wind and things like that. But, you know, there's like technology development curve and hopefully the cost curve goes down with that small module reactors, like, it'd be great to see some um, really um, solid innovation there. And, uh, you know, whether that has that happens within New Brunswick or Ontario or somewhere else, um, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, um, a lot of good things will happen on 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 that technology, uh, because because we're going to need a lot more electricity, you know, if we're going to electrify our economy, um, you know, home heating and transportation, um population growth coming along and then you know hopefully adding um economic growth alongside of that through 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 new businesses and industries like it's it's a big heavy lift so um but but right now i think we have to be laser focused on first like being as efficient as possible like we we really really need to ramp up uh spending on energy efficiency in a big big way um both for just you know um, effective use of the resource, but also because of energy poverty issues. Uh, and then, um, you know, there's going to have to be pretty significant investments in the grid to handle going off coal and all of these, like, in, in like putting in all these pieces of the puzzle together. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about green hydrogen, but that's mostly for, you know, contemplated for export, but, you know, there, there's obviously like, hopefully going to be opportunities to like um, create some sort of hydrogen economy in, in the region as we, as we pursue this as
1: well. Yeah, I want to go into more depth around energy efficiency. I think that's fallen off the radar, uh, the smart grid and this idea of actually reducing our, our energy demand or being more efficient with energy. I think that's a really important topic that we're not talking enough about, but I wanted to ask you just a follow up around wind energy. We had a discussion around the production of potential green hydrogen in Nova Scotia, and the proponent was talking about, you know, potentially hundreds, maybe a thousand or more uh, turbines required. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are around public support for a dramatic increase in the number of wind turbines in Nova Scotia. I was in Portugal a couple of years ago, and every mountain as you drive along the road has uh, a cluster of, uh, of wind turbines uh, for hundreds of kilometers. Uh, do you think Nova Scotians and Atlantic Canadians are ready for that level of, uh, of, of uh, wind uh, energy infrastructure in the province?
2: hard to say david um you know uh, atlanta canada is such a beautiful place and people hold um the attributes of of our provinces very dear to their hearts i know that you know even with the the recent wind procurements that there's community groups that have questions and concerns um you know i i think that you know policy regulation needs to be set in place that you know considers community the proponents really need to work on um, connecting with the community to make them uh, a part of the projects. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a role for government and organizations like mine to come along and help educate, and engage, and help people find um, uh, their association with with having this amount of infrastructure around. But, um, you know, if you look at offshore wind, like we, we've yet to begin to even engage on the community consent component, right? Like there's there's people thinking about that right now. Um, but if you look at the speed at which like green hydrogen is is contemplated, uh, and when, you know, Germany would like to see some um, productive exports, like it's gonna have to happen really fast. Um, it, it, it's, uh, we, we can't take community consent for granted uh and um uh and that goes with like pretty much anything that goes within uh, you know the transition to a clean economy so like I-, I hold the same concerns as you do david like that you know um huge amounts of wind turbines um may be uh, considered unsightly or um certain established industries like the fisheries have, will have a lot of questions um you know we have to get on that now because um, the transition to a clean economy is going to require compromise, and uh, you know, including community in it, or or we're not going to. Uh, I, I I don't think successfully achieve it on the timeline required.
1: Yeah, I call it the Anne Murray problem, right? Because you have the Nova Scotia's most famous uh, native daughter uh, coming out against wind <laughs> energy. It doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't really help uh, when we're looking at developing that source of energy. One last question on the grid. Yeah. Uh, there has been talk of something called the Atlantic Loop, which would be bring big hydro from Labrador, Northern Quebec, uh, uh, into the Maritimes and solve all our problems without any new turbines or any other infrastructure. Uh, But it would require billions of dollars in federal support, or at least that's what's being proposed. Uh, But it would be, I guess, kind of an elegant solution. You bring much or all of the power you need uh, beyond what we've got now. Uh, You bring it all in from somewhere else. Uh, Of course, we'd lose the generation capacity here in the region and the economic benefits of that uh, generation. But what are your thoughts around the Atlantic Loop to connect hydropower from uh, from uh, Quebec and uh, Labrador to our region? Well,
2: you know, I think I think a regionally connected grid, again like appears to be essential, right? We need uh, collaboration across provinces on, on, a, on a connected grid to to deal with, um, you know, a higher penetration of renewables and to get access to low carbon sources, um, you know, I think even with any contemplation of, of an Atlantic Loop or or as NSP calls it, the East Coast Connection Initiative, um, there's still going to be a whole lot more domestic renewables in the mix with that as well. It's not going to just be it's not going to be a, a panacea to to create lines and just buy electrons from Quebec or somewhere else or, or Newfoundland. Like it, it still, it still requires a lot of work. The the challenge I think with this right now is is figuring out um, what exactly is included in the loop or the connection initiative, who owns it, who pays for it, and when. Um, and there's a lot of questions to be answered about that. And and I think there's a thirst for more information about it. At this point, um, it's hard to it's hard to judge until you until you know more. But I think in general, like connecting the grids across province and and collaborating on, uh, load balancing and supply is going to be necessary one way or another. Um, you know, uh, we, we, we deal with like provincial politics and the realities of, of, you know, different structures of utilities and then, um, you know, distributed energy generation options. Like, um, there's, there's a lot to fill in there. I think, um, you know, the last thing I'll say about it is that like um, mega projects take time and it's almost the end of 2022 and it would be great to get started on something. And, you know, we need collaboration across provinces and with the federal government to have a chance at this.
0: Scott, I would like to turn our attention to the work that you do at the Clean Foundation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the key initiatives of the foundation to support and encourage a green economy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my, the work that my organization does, like inspires me every day, we have, we have an amazing staff of very, very smart, committed people. So like, like I mentioned earlier, over the past few years, we've been focusing on uh, supporting communities transition to the low carbon economy. And, and the lens that we'll use is like, we try to focus on reducing energy poverty, promoting social equity and supporting underserved and unre- unrepresented underrepresented communities as much as possible um playing a role in developing the clean economy workforce with youth a lot of the time but we're increasingly interested in mid-career transition um you know protecting the natural environment has been part of our dna for a very long time and remains so and uh educating and promoting action on climate change again particularly amongst youth has has been a part of the organization for 35 years and it's a very very strong part today so we, we currently have somewhere uh you know around 40 active programs going at any any time, so those cover uh, energy efficiency program delivery, EV education and engagement, coastal ad- adaptation projects, climate education, workforce uh, development programs, and those could be internships or wage subsidies, municipal capacity building, and, and increasingly uh, because of our breadth and you know just the all-star staff that we that we're lucky enough to have, we're increasingly contributing to like climate policy development uh, support initiatives like under consulting engagements or through boards and committees, like the the senior staff at the Clean Foundation are are on um, like national level boards and committees of just about every one of those topics. So like we're trying to contribute uh, to the knowledge base where we can and also learn from uh, like sort of the the best minds across the country. So we don't stay um, just uh, isolated to our own region and, and not poke our head up once in a while.
0: Maybe you can tell us about the metrics that are you, that you're using to measure your performance, Scott, if you would.
2: Well, I mean, the the easy thing that we have to do a lot of the time is meet the um, requirements of the uh, the service agreements that we have with our government partners on our programs. Like that's that's the easy part uh, to measure, and and you know I, we have a very very strong track record at at meeting those. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm constantly amazed at how how consistently we're we're able to achieve those across like in many cases, programs that are, you know, brand new and just thought up. Right. Um, um, you know, there there isn't uh, there's a lot of innovation that happens within within these programs. But in, in general, like organizationally, like we're we try to focus on impact, like how how are we impacting the communities in which we work? So we're not just focused on increasing revenue. I mean, you know, sometimes those things are connected, but in general, like we we want to be focused on making a difference not just chasing projects because there's big dollars attached to them you know that that you know any, any nonprofit will tell you that and I, I think we we hold it near and dear the the other things that i sort of judge our our progress on is like uh are we creating good jobs for people are we an employer of choice in our sector are, are we good to work with with our partners because we have many many of them across our program suite and if we're not good to work with we're not going to like achieve the best impact we're not going to spread and, and gain new knowledge so being a good partner is is really important to us and then broadly i mean you know we're we're very motivated by you know progress around uh, um you know decreasing emissions and 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 our our efforts to support uh things like climate legislation in, in nova scotia and other places and you know Helping communities become more resilient to the challenges that, that impact them, uh, we try to capture some of this in our in our annual review, which is on our website, and um, you know try to tell some stories around that because I think um, you know that's that's part of our obligation now is to like clarify what you know a transition to the clean economy really is to the to the general public, not just like our government and partners uh, who are you know we're working on projects with pretty strict deliverables.
1: So I wanted to ask you a little bit about, again, about the obstacles uh, for this region to become a greener economy. I mean, we have lower than average uh, household income here compared to the rest of the country. We're far more rural here compared to places like Ontario. Uh, We have a number of industries that are energy intensive and capital intensive. Uh, You know, we have industries like the fishing sector, uh, as you referred to earlier. So I'm wondering if you look specifically at this region What do you think are the obstacles to becoming a greener economy?
2: Well, at least for the time being, I think we've got some um, pretty decent political will to reach the goals that have been set uh, and and publicly uh, communicated through policy and legislation. That's really important to have the political will to push forward on it. Um, You know, now we're moving forward to like the the difficult rubber hits the road implementation phase, and um, and, and this is going to cost some money. And uh, we've got very very uh, acute issues in you know improving our healthcare system and housing and, af- and affordability. We need to make sure that we're we're making the right choices, and that uh, that government is creating a path that the private sector can contribute to this, because it's like government's not going to be able to pay for it all, um, given the realities of that we live in, in our economy and, and rural urban, um, you know, mix in Atlantic Canada. The good thing though, is like the invest, like money spent in the clean economy is an investment. It's not just a cost, right? If, you, if you've read the um, Halifax climate plan called Halifax, you know, they lay out in pretty clear terms about, you know, this is going to cost, um, you know, it's a very large number and the many billions, but what it, uh, if it's achieved, what it does is saves the money, saves the municipality and even more money. So, um, I think, you know, if you, if you look at obstacles, it's like, it's. Staying the course on these plans and initiatives in the midst of like, um, issues and challenges that come up in the political, uh, cycle at a time of like great change so um, you know there's always going to be something that comes up that we're going to have to address um you know in in, in 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 rapid time like and we know this like covid was a pandemic was a perfect example of this but you know it's how do you make sure that these uh investments um have co-benefits that help communities and reduce costs and improve health and um you know we're also like you know have to stay laser focused on the needs of people who are uh, economically disadvantaged, so um, like the energy poverty question is 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 key. And I, you know, I mentioned earlier, and I was happy to hear you sort of concur, David, that like energy efficiency has to be a big part of it. Like it's been been characterized in, uh, at times as like you, we should consider it the first fuel. Um, we should we should save as much money as we can, uh, save as much energy as we can because it saves people money. Like uh, there's a phrase that uh, Rick. Smith, at the uh, the CEO of the Canadian Climate Institute, has been using a lot, and I've been copying him shamelessly on this. But like, um, smart climate policy fights inflation, right? So if we move people on to uh, like heat pumps, although electricity prices may may increase, they're not subject to like wild commodity swings. They're more efficient. They make uh, houses more more comfortable. Um, You know, you have access to cooling during heat waves. This is just like smart policy to control costs for people who are struggling with inflation.
1: So just a just a, a bit of a follow up on that because I'm does Nova Scotia have rough timelines for how it sees the greening of the economy for example at what point will the transportation infrastructure be green at what point I mean Nova Scotia is one of the highest percentages of homes heated by uh, by uh, oil heat still is there a plan to get those houses off oil heat? What about the greening of the fishing fleet? You know, these guys are uh, are buying new uh, new fishing boats now that are not green in any way. Uh, so, is there is there a rough plan for how people can understand how long what, when this transition is actually going to take place? The first place to look is is the Environmental Goals
2: and Climate Change Reduction Act, which sets a bunch of uh, Goals and targets. Um, you know, some of them are very high level. Uh, some of them are more more detailed. Some of them are a bit vague. And you know, and one of them is like um, in- increasing or improving or strengthening energy efficiency. You know, you get down into details about like how do you transition the the, the fishing industry. And I think there's a there's there's early stage work around electrifying some of like uh, marine infrastructure. And hydrogen can play a big part in that. There's there's that that hopefully starts to speed up, but that's sort of like been approached within the catch all of um, making commitments to reduce emissions. Like we haven't got down to specifics on things like that. The the province of Nova Scotia, you know, ECRA came out last year. Next up is um, a climate risk assessment that'll that should be released. Uh, needs to be released this fall and then uh, then following that there's a climate plan that should fill that in. We can also look towards the emission reduction plan from the federal government to give some um, idea about that. They're you know looking at the built environment, uh, you know really interested in clean tech and and, and sort of uh, rallying uh, industry and the clean economy in different parts of the country based upon their their attributes.
1: So to just completely pivot to another area that you're passionate about, it's one of your focus areas, and that's environmental protection. Uh, um, uh, one of the key areas the Clean Foundation focuses on is work to protect and restore coastline in Nova Scotia. Can you tell us about your efforts in this area to protect vital shoreland uh, shore and perhaps give us a few examples of the work that you do?
2: Yeah. So um, Nova Scotia is home to 13,000 kilometers of coastline, making our province particularly vulnerable to risks of climate change. And, and salt marshes make up about 13% of this. Uh, salt marshes also play a pivotal role in protecting our province, uh, you know, just against the resiliency of like uh, storms. Uh, you know, there are also carbon sinks. Uh, they filter pollutants and nutrients and improve water quality. Like they're, they're pretty amazing, m- amazing things. But unfortunately over, over the last century or so, and maybe a bit longer, we've, we've seen a loss of about 65% of them in Nova Scotia. So we've been uh, working with many partners, um, experts across um, North America on on uh, building capacity and then demonstrating it in a few projects. So, um, you know, with a nature-based solution. So uh, under this project called the North uh, Northumberland Strait Coastal Restoration Project, our team, like, Three of the things that they did over the last uh, few years, one is they identified and replaced failing culver- culverts in Marshall's Crossing in Pictou County to improve the, both tidal and freshwater flow and prevent f- uh, further disruption to local infrastructure. And that, you know, that costs a bit of money. It's like hard infrastructure, It, um, you know, uh, but, but it, it um rather elegant uh, and non-intrusive way to like to I- impact like a salt marsh. But again, like, you know, your permits, rebuild a bridge, all this stuff. It's like an engineering project. Another example is they worked with uh, the Picto Landing First Nation to restore a degraded salt marsh along an important beach in the community of Sittemuk. To support uh, habitat growth for local plant and animal species, as well as act as a buffer against sea level rise. And this is right by an elementary school that Picto Landing recently built. And then uh, the, la- the latest one that they've been involved in is a, is a degraded salt marsh near Brule Point in Tatamagush. and this was more like of a low intervention type uh, engagement. It was it, it involved volunteers digging these things called runnels, which uh, were turned out to be remarkably effective at uh, restoring the health of big parts of this salt marsh. So uh, you know we- basically what we've been trying to do is characterize, uh, and then pro- uh, create some examples of ways that communities can take this knowledge and deploy it in other ways like so at, whenever we do a plot project at the clean Foundation the, the products of it are open source we share with everybody so one of the things that was done in this project is like create a like a, um, a GIS map, map GIS mapped inventory of all of uh, of a lot of the coastline uh Around the Northumberland Shore, and that's like um, available through our website, and anybody can use it. So hopefully, this will create the conditions for a lo- for a lot more projects. But um, there's other organizations like out of uh, out of St. Mary's and the uh, Blue Nose Coastal Action Group down in Lunenburg that are are working on this stuff as well. And hopefully, uh, it creates um, a community connection and. Last point I'll make about this is that like we, we've been very strong partners all on this with uh, the Confederacy and Mainland Mi'kmaq and working with uh, First Nations communities and traditional knowledge to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're taking that two-eyed seeing perspective.
0: The Clean Foundation is also involved in promoting cleaner transportation options and provides rebates for new vehicle and e-bike purchases through the Electrified Nova Scotia rebate program. Can you tell us a little bit about this rebate program and and the success to date of your efforts?
2: Yeah, sure, Don. Um, so Electrify provides rebates for the purchase or lease of qualifying uh, battery electric vehicles, plug-in hybrids, and e-bikes uh, purchased or leased from dealerships or retailers located in Nova Scotia. Uh, and and what's also great is that the program can be combined with the federal rebate program. So I, I've got some you know recent stats. So from February twenty twenty one to When it started to June 2022, there was uh, 678 rebates for new um, battery electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids, 196 for used, and very interestingly to me, and uh, a bit surprised, over 3,000 rebates for e-bikes. And what is also interesting about it is uh, the average age of those receiving an e-bike rebate has been 57. So great story about keeping people healthy and active. Um, I love it. And, uh, you know, it's not part of Electrify, but like uh, our clean uh, transportation team has also been working with Entercan on a procurement for level two charging, public level two charging stations. And there's soon to be uh, 270 of those installed across the province with organizations and municipalities. So we're we're on the path, um, but not quite there yet. So the uh, there's a long way to go to meet the the, the zero emission vehicle targets
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> maybe you can tell us you know where we are in terms of the percentage of vehicles that are currently electric in Nova Scotia and and uh, what is the target uh, for our 20 2030 uh, yeah so we're not really
2: able to track the EV numbers specifically, but we, we checked with SP Global who tracked some of this stuff and 2.2% of vehicles registered in the province were zero emission vehicles in the first half of 2022. And that's up from 1.5% of vehicle registrations in 2021. In the environmental Nova Scotia Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act, Nova Scotia committed to 30% of light duty vehicle sales being zero emission vehicles by 2030. Um, and, the, and, the, and the federal government has, has sort of superseded that by saying that 20% of all new passenger vehicles uh, in Canada should be zero emission by 2026. So that's like in between and uh, at least 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035. So there's a lot of policy developing around this. Uh, there's different opinions on whether we need mandates to stronger mandates to support this that push the car manufacturers or you know these are um, supply chain issues that can be solved but um, really if you've driven an electric vehicle they're pretty great I, i'm lucky enough to have one and i think it's awesome so i'm, I'm hopeful that they will become more accessible for the public in the next few
1: years because they're really cheap to fuel uh, scott the clean foundation was recently involved in the consultations that led to the new uh, nova scotia climate legislation we would like you to provide a summary of the key elements of this new climate legislation for our listeners. What are the most significant impacts of this legislation on Nova Scotians uh, moving forward?
2: Yeah, so uh, the Environmental Goals and Climate Change Reduction Act is the next step in in environmental legislation in in Nova Scotia. And it's built on uh, the the previous version that was um, created in 2006 uh, called EXPA, the Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act. So unique uh, legislation uh, in Canada in that um, you know, the, there was a, a series of, of, of goals and targets that were set and, and, and meant to be uh, reviewed periodically. Um, and, you know, so the EXPA sort of got to like the, its time horizon and it was time to re- review and see what comes next. So this version has 28 goals and sets principles on how we should achieve them, including focusing on equity, well-being and, you know, importantly, Indigenous participation. The headline goals are the are the 53 percent emission reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050, off coal and renewables um, by 2030. There's also things in there uh, like um, targets on waste diversion and land production. And uh, uh, importantly, it, it looks at um, the what's required to accomplish this is like a whole of government approach. So. The Act sits within the Department of Environment and Climate Change, but there's responsibilities that sit with um, uh, departments uh, across government because the through the 28 uh, goals, it, it's quite broad. Um, it require, if you read them, some of them re, uh, point to things that are you know, hopefully coming up soon, like the climate risk assessment and the climate plan, which, which should fill in some of the details of the how we're going to reach these these important goals but it really um sets um an intention that the federal uh, the provincial government and our environment minister tim hallman who's super engaged are, are focused on these things they have a a measure of accountability that um you know they they can uh, we, we can track the progress over time so uh, um, i'm very very uh, very happy to see this come into um, come into Force and, and really looking forward to, like, like I said before, you know, the rubber hitting the road of implementation and, and the, the collaboration that will, you know, need to happen to, to, to find success.
0: Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you see as the continuing role of the Roundtable for Environmental and Sustainable uh, Prosperity, Scott. Yeah, so
2: the, the Round Table, um, which I'm, you know, have the pleasure of, of chairing, um, is an independent body appointed by the Environment Minister to support the implementation of the Act. And uh, provide advice and feedback when required. There, there's some uh, annual um, deliverables that we have, like reviewing the annual report that comes uh, out about the progress up, uh, on the Act and its goals. You know, it's a. Uh, in general, the members are there to help. We understand this is a huge lift of, of government and society to to get these things done. Um, but it's a highly highly experienced group that comes from. Uh, industry, academia, nonprofit, um, you know, and in different sectors. So, you know, uh, there is space for some of the the feedback and advice to be constructive criticism, which I think makes for a healthy relationship. But, um, you know, we meet quite frequently with the minister now, like uh, up to five times a year, which is which is really helpful. So there's there's a lot of two way communication. And um, it, uh, you know, the members of the roundtable are there because they care about how things happen and that we get to the targets and the goals.
0: Yeah, part of the legislation mandates the release of a province-wide climate change risk assessment by the end of the year. Obviously, that's pretty important. Maybe you could tell us who's undertaking that assessment and how confident are you that it will be completed by the date promised? The
2: Department of Environment and Climate Change is undertaking this, um, you know, probably with some external help on some some key features, but it's largely one of um, their projects. The work is well underway. There's always timing issues with, you know, government getting things out the door, but uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm confident that they'll be able to meet the, the deadlines that they've set for themselves. I think what y- you can expect is that uh, the climate change, uh, the climate risk assessment will come out, you know, that kind of lists the where the problems and challenges are and then it would soon be followed by the climate plan which which is the solutions right so you know we've seen this before from uh, um, premier houston's government that he likes to focus on uh, not leave um, challenges hanging but uh, come forward with solutions so i think that'll be the same same perspective here i know there's a lot of people who work in this field that are, are ready and waiting for it but i uh, i see it coming along probably not long after we get some, um, more characterization of what carbon pricing is going to look like, which, which should happen in the next month or so.
1: So Scott, how have, uh, how, has, how has the focus of the clean foundation changed and your plans for the coming year now, based on this new legislation, what are, where, what are your new areas of focus? So the
2: interesting thing is like, uh, It really hasn't changed our area of focus because like when you remember at the beginning of the pandemic where uh, everything, uh, you know, there was the frame around build back better and the the green recovery uh, and it sort of broke things out into like four or five main areas. Those were the areas that we were already working on. Um, So basically, you know, our growth over the last few years has been on things scaling up. So we expect that to continue. Uh, we expect to, you know, maybe look a work a bit further afield outside of Nova Scotia at times. Um, you know, uh, w- we have worked really hard to like um, beef up our administrative capacity to handle bigger projects with, um, you know, sometimes arduous reporting requirements. If you if you've worked on big projects with the federal government, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So the mantra that we've always taken at the Clean Foundation is that like we can't control the political cycles. It's really hard to to read those tea leaves. But when windows of opportunity open, uh, we we want to be ready. And, and at this point, uh, you know, with the political alignment we have, you know, Nova Scotia is a great example. You know, Halifax has Halifax, the promise, province has the climate plan, ECRA, the Fed's Net Zero Accountability Act. All these things are lining up. So this is a window of opportunity. And uh, we are going to be ready to grow. The other thing I would, uh, you know, the realization that we've come to over the last couple of years is that um, from a communication and, and education standpoint, that I think we've become really good at speaking to people who are in our like climate bubble. Like they understand us very, very well. But a lot of the things that are coming out through policy and programs now, the general public is, you know, kind of confused by them, um, not always keeping track of them in the same way like. We're thinking a lot about how we get these messages out to the community in the ways that they uh, are will are ready to accept them and identify how they can be part of solutions. We feel that uh, that's important to make sure that the right people who are eligible for programs are putting their hand up when they need to. also so that um, you know, when elections come around, People understand will understand who has good climate policies and 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 perhaps um, are, will be willing to to vote for them because uh, again I think you know it's uh, the, we're, the every jurisdiction is trying to figure out how to take advantage of the clean economy. There's a competitiveness issue to this. It's also uh, very important to our youth that we're creating opportunities in this sector. Um, we see overwhelming interest and demand amongst youth for jobs in the in the clean economy. So there's a, there's a lot on the line to get right, and uh, you know the the public needs to understand where the government policy is coming from. And I think we can play uh, uh, part of a, a small role in in making that a, a reality.
0: Thank you for uh, joining us on this episode of the Insights Podcast, Scott. Your work is very important, obviously, to the future of uh, Nova Scotia and, and in fact, the, the whole region and what, what's going on. And we want to wish you every success in your efforts to help build a green economy for Nova Scotia.
2: Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure to be on here with you. And, uh, you know, I think we probably just scratched the surface on a lot of these questions. <laughs> it's and it's yeah. uh, like dynamically unfolding in front of us as we see with like, you know, things like green hydrogen, but, um, I happy to be back anytime you guys want to chat.
0: Well, I just want to make one sort of quick uh, comment because uh, David and I've been talking a lot about alternative energy uh, options. And the one thing that seems to be uh, coming true is that there's a lot of uh, sort of c- coming together of the ideas. The ideas we're hearing from different people are being uh, repeated. And uh, I think that that's encouraging. It's not like a competition. It's like everybody feels that, you know, it's got to be a portfolio of solutions and, uh, There's greater recognition of that than ever, I think. So I think you contributed that and we appreciate it. Great to hear. Awesome. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.